I was 5,000 feet above the earth, headed to the ground at 120 miles an hour when that instant was captured. That means my life expectancy at that point is 27 seconds. Well, hello, everybody. Before we get into today's episode, which is a doozy, let's talk about a sponsor, the Woodford Group. Do Monday mornings get you down? Are you feeling unmotivated in your current job? Then it is time for a change. Let the team at the Woodford Group help you find your dream job today. With a focus on senior executive, permanent and temp roles within the HR, business support and customer service industries, the dedicated team will help you find success and satisfaction in your new job. Visit woodfordgroup.com.au today. Ever wanted to skydive? Now think about doing it with a chronic illness which affects the control of your body, the body which you need to control to fall through the air effectively and safely. Well, today's guest is a social psychologist, entrepreneur, author, and skydiver, and he's doing it all with MS. When he lost everything he cared about, he decided to rebuild his life by facing the fear of what he calls his wonky body in the air and became a skydiver. Episode 62, Dr. Kevin Payne. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. I say us, but it's me, just me. (laughs) (laughs) It's the royal us. It's the me, myself, and I, all my split personalities. <laughs> well, well, you know, there's, and this is a topic I talk about, we are actually, the idea of an identity yeah. is actually an illusion we perpetrate on ourselves. I mean, that's what the science is telling us now. And so I refer to us as a society of mind. And, and identity is the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves as we're trying to negotiate some kind of order amongst all those agents who are trying to move us and make decisions in our mind. Okay, you're going to have to unpack that for me a little bit. Wow, that got really deep really fast. Sorry about that. (laughs) I thought we were here to talk about your MS and your life story, but we're talking about um, much more deeper things. So, Okay, so I I think that we need to sort of um, unpack your clinical because you're a doctor. But I think we need to sort of say doctor of, of what, and then we can go back into that identity sure. conversation. Sure. So what are you a doctor so, in? So my doctorate <laughs> is, in, is in sociology and psychology. Okay. And I am a social psychologist. I've studied people for 30 years. Mm-hmm. I spent 15 years as a professor. You may have been able to tell just now. Uh, and, and the last decade, I have been a startup tech entrepreneur, and so as as a scientist, I've specialized in two things. One is research methods and data science, so mm-hmm. how we study people and how we build models that predict human behavior, and the second is a question that is more germane to probably what we'll talk about today, and that is why do some people succeed or fail under difficult circumstances that aren't going to get better? So you're basically what you're saying is the the tech side of things, it's AI. You're working with Mm -hmm. AI in terms of, okay. Right. All right. That's scary that you're doing it into, (laughs) into predictive human behavior. Are we that I predictable? It. I yeah, actually we are in in groups. We are. So that whole herd mentality. Well, yeah, it's part of that, and it, and it's also I'm, our models are not super good at saying you are going to do X rather than Y, but they're very good at saying of a hundred people like you. 70% of you are going to do X and the other 30% are going to do Y. So that where, does, where does the whole identity is fiction, basically, is what you're saying, mm-hmm. that initial statement. Where does that all come in? Because identity is based on life experiences. It's your story that you've grown right. up Right, right. Of... But but here's the thing. There's Think about it this way. So 
if behaviors are what bodies do, then mind is what brain does. Okay. And mind is about trying to understand and make sense of the world. And humans are fundamentally narrative creatures. We impose story on everything. That's, mm. That is our oldest characteristically human way of making sense of the world. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's pre-rational. Mm-hmm. It is, it, it, you know, rationality is, is a newer thing historically and evolutionarily. Stories are, are old. That's why stories resonate with us so much. And minds arise in layers. So they do that in two ways. They arise in layers in the long span of history. So first we developed our basal brain and 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 then later on you get like the limbic system and and kind of the midbrain going and then even more recent there's the new stuff that's going on in the neocortex, right? And and but it also happens to each individual one of us as we develop. So what I'm saying is, as a little kid, you don't have all of your brain systems online. Mm. And, and there are, you, you are, you know, like, for example, a little kid under, say, about two and a half or three doesn't understand this idea of object permanence. So if you put an object in front of them and then cover it, they don't understand that that thing is still there behind mm-hmm. what you covered. Mm-hmm. But then if you pay attention to like your little kids when you grew up, and like my little kids, I was just like many classic social and behavioral scientists. I shamelessly experimented on my kids uh, when they were little just to, you know, <laughs> confirm some of these things. And it, and it is true. So somewhere around two and a half or three years old for most kids they will get this idea that, oh, if something is covering it, that thing is still there. Okay. Okay? So that's why a little kid, if if they're playing hide-and-seek, they may stand, and I've got a picture, which is still to this day one of my very favorite pictures of my daughter when she was about two, two and a half years old. And just right before she made this shift, and she's playing hide-and-seek, and she's hiding by sticking her face in a curtain. Oh, that's really cute. And then the second picture is she pulls the curtain away and she's got this giant grin on her face because she's like, wow, look, see, I'm, I appeared again. So little kids have a lot of things that they can't understand. And then, like, you know, you get to three, four-year-old now they're going to understand that not only are they a person with an identity that is that has got likes and dislikes and choices and is moving through the world they will begin to understand that you are are just exactly like that as well and and so as we grow we get more voices in our head now what the thing is that those really ancient systems yeah. Don't grow themselves. We grow new layers on top of them. So you still have your ancient primal fear voices in your head. And they don't grow up. But you develop more sophisticated layers as you go along and and now your mind is trying to negotiate this sense of identity who are you which of those voices do you listen to and and we don't necessarily hear them as voices in our head uh but well there's medication uh, for that pardon there's medication for that there there is medication (laughs) for that but interestingly enough at least some of the time a little over half of us do report hearing voices in our head so it's not unusual and it's not psychotic. Hmm. Coming from a non-religious standpoint, I wonder if that's when 
people are saying, well, that's, you know, that's when I hear, like I, sometimes when I, I, I think maybe, oh, do I want to go down this rabbit hole? I was going to say, this is now, now we're in danger of going on, <laughs> on a digression from the digression. Yeah, maybe and we're we'll only just leave a few that. minutes I in. <laughs> I don't know why I want to go down that rabbit hole. I want all the hate mail. Um, <laughs> so, this the the okay. So let's tie this back into your story. So you're saying that the okay. that the identity side of things is is fiction. Yeah, but it's crucial. So I mean, I, I'm saying that. Okay, so so fiction in the sense that it is a story that we are consistently crafting and recrafting mm-hmm. and and reinterpreting as we go along and it only has the the most tenuous connection to what an outside observer would call objective truth okay so okay let me do, so you're saying that our identity is only someone else would say is objective, not objective truth. Did I hear that right? Right, right. And, and, and as a matter of fact, if you ask, so there's a whole field of study in social psychology where we look at what your identity is and what other people think Perceive your you identity is. That's okay. And, and how those either cohere with one another or they don't. And it turns out often they don't. And often the problems that you experience socially in the world have to do with you living out one particular vision of your identity and other people finding that those behaviors that they see are not the ones they expect because they have internalized a different identity for you. So does that mean that your identity is fiction or does that mean that their interpretation of you is inaccurate? But but it is all a matter of interpretation because your identity okay so there's here's a, here's a really fascinating while Kevin, we're going deep to down this rabbit moron, hole you got to really dumb this down. <laughs> yeah, that that no that I didn't think we were going to go down. No, neither so this did is I. Fun. <laughs> okay, so here's something here's something for you and everybody listening to try. Okay. And it's really actually an insightful thing. And it's called the Identi- the Iowa 20 Answers Identity Inventory. And it's real simple. Okay. Take out a blank piece of paper. Right. At the top of the paper, write the question across the top, who am I? Right. And now That's so simple. <laughs> No, 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 no. It's going to be really simple because you're going to you're going to number it from one to 20 down the side. And now the very first thing that pops into your mind, write it by blank one. And it could be tall, short. It could be smart. It could be, uh, you know, a role like husband, father or son. It could be. Smart, stupid, you know, some kind of characteristic. It could be a job. Maybe it's, you know, scientist or or podcaster or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. It could be something like lover of small fluffy animals. Literally, it doesn't matter. Just write those things down. Now, when you get done with that, you will find that those terms tend to group into a handful of things. So characteristics about yourself, behaviors, social identities, or what are called the oceanic self, this rather nebulous kind of, you know, I am one with the universe sorts of statements. And and why that's important is because that says a lot about how you anchor yourself in the world and how you draw value out of the world. So, for example, if you have a lot of social roles in what you're, in what you're using to identify yourself, then 
relative to other people, you tend to have more weight placed on your relationships in how you view yourself and how you view your satisfaction to the world. Now, I am going to, and I hope you find this remarkable, I'm going to throw a little spin on this that's going to take this completely back to where we started okay. and 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 get us off this digression, <laughs> unless you want to keep going down it. So here's something that's interesting. I have done this mm. just out of my own curiosity every six months for mm, almost 30 years. And the interesting thing that you'll find, you can't really do it more often than that, but the interesting thing that you'll find is that the things that are top of mind in how you think about yourself will change over time. And, and you will anchor your identity and you will reframe your identity. There may be a story or an experience that you had, say, 20 years ago that you saw one way then. And you draw a very different lesson from it now. So with the work that I do now, here's one really curious thing. For the most part, most humans, when they're making that list of their identity uh, things, they almost never, if they are healthy, put anything in there related to their health status. It's okay. something we don't even think about when it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. But then suddenly, if somebody is living with an ongoing health challenge, then there often are two or three or four or five or six or seven things in that list that relate to the problems that they are having with their health. So one of the things that we see with identity is if you have a problem with your with your health, mm -hmm. suddenly that can come to really overwhelm a lot of the ways that we think about ourselves and the way that we see how we have potential or possibility in the world. And, and this is something that Normally, we don't even think of if we're healthy. It crowds out a lot of the rest of our identity. Do you think that that's also added, and I take that in terms of it can create more of a negative mindset and more of a negative identity yes. because you're focused on focused on the illness, which is yes. a negative. No one wants to be unwell. But do you think that's also... Um, exacerbated by the fact that we are so bombarded with snapshots and negative images and negative media and social media that's all scrolling and, and most of it's people injuring themselves and negative stuff. I mean, it's you scroll through a thousand to get to a positive one. Do you think that that's exacerbated by that? So therefore the mind is more programmed to focus on the negative? Well, I think there are two things going on here. And, and boy, you really are wanting to get wonky. This is cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there are two things going on here. One, humans naturally practice something called automatic vigilance. And that's the technical term for we find the negative things in life more salient. They mm -hmm. pop out of the background and and uh, we focus on them. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a good evolutionary reason for that. The negative things were the ones that were more likely to kill us. And, and our ancestors who didn't do that were more likely to get killed. Mm -hmm. so, so that's the one. And, and, and certainly we find negative representations, negative stories, gossip more interesting. But the second thing that's going on here, too, is something that's called, and there's been some fascinating research done on this in really the last decade or so, and, and it's called supernormal stimuli. 
and supernormal stimuli. So, so think about this. <clears throat> Our ancestors adapted to respond to signals in a natural world. And what we have discovered, especially since the 20th century, is that we can manipulate other people's attention by the signals, the messages we put up in front of them. And of course, advertising is the most obvious example of this. But everyday people are now using this in social media to, to get their attention, right? And, and so what a supernormal stimuli is, is something that is not found in nature. And it's something that is exaggerated in a way that is artificially designed to draw on our natural tendency to pay attention to things like that. So it's, it's a caricature of something that we would normally find interesting. So I want to tie this back to your to your MS diagnosis. You've been studying mm -hmm. psychology and and stuff, and you've obviously got a doctorate in it for decades. At what? How long ago were you diagnosed with MS? Yeah, so I finally got a successful diagnosis in two thousand six. Okay. Retrospectively, I had been symptomatic and and misdiagnosed from nineteen eighty nine. 89. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah, 17 years. Um, so, but that is also not so unusual for multiple sclerosis. Okay. So does that mean that you used this knowledge in terms of the illness can make, create the, overtake the sense of identity? Did that mean that you have actively focused on it, not, not allowing that to happen? Because you're skydiving, you're doing all these all this yeah. crazy well i would say crazy stuff anyway i'm not into skydiving so, but you're also no, okay. doing it's it crazy well come on seriously <laughs> there is nothing natural about humans flinging their bodies at the earth no there just isn't uh, so so yeah you can call it crazy if you want yeah um, but it's crazier but, because ms from my understanding it means that you don't have as much because of the um pathway the the i think we have to explain what MS is it for my understanding you want the primer here so uh, so it's a demyelinating condition mm -hmm. and what that means is the nerves in our central nervous system and our brain and our spinal cord have this fatty layer of myelin around them like the wires in your house have have coatings around them to protect them from short circuiting and from breaking and stuff like that in multiple sclerosis our autoimmune system has gotten confused and is now attacking that myelin. So multiple sclerosis literally means multiple scars. And that refers to the scars that happen in our central nervous system after a part has been attacked. And so what that means is since everything we do think, feel, say goes through our central nervous system, the symptoms of multiple sclerosis can almost literally be anything. There are physical symptoms. So for me, I don't feel my legs below my knees. I have parathesias, which are itching, electric shocks, feelings that are not there. Okay? I have uh, cognitive issues. I have brain fog. I have symptoms that effectively mimic ADD. Uh, it's it's much more difficult for me to concentrate than it used to be. Uh, and I have emotional symptoms. I have labile emotions, it, it, difficulty regulating my emotions sometimes because they're just damage in these different parts of my body. I have balance issues. I'm constantly in pain. I'm, I'm constantly fatigued. I'm, you know, I'm... So there are about eight or nine symptoms that are always there for me, and then there are another 30 that come and go. So MS is a capricious disease 
it is different for everybody because we each have different amounts of damage in different places. Mm. So, yeah, for me, coming back to skydiving, mm. uh, and and I and I came back in ninety in 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 twenty nineteen. Uh, I had I had started doing the training the first time in nineteen ninety six as a young man, and I got a handful of jumps in, and then a lot of life got in the way, and then I I my MS got a lot worse, and I hit bottom, and and I gave up on it. So, coming back to skydiving, starting all over again, figuring out a way to control my wonky body in mm. freefall. Mm. Especially when I can't feel my legs below my knees. That was and why that was I was the... interested about that... it because it's it's I would imagine a fairly critical aspect of skydiving being able to. It was. Yeah. You will like this. So so normally it takes twenty five jumps to get your A license in skydiving. Mm-hmm. That's your first of four licenses mm-hmm. in the sport, and it took me forty seven jumps to get my A license. And the reason why was, so when I went back in 2019, I didn't tell anybody at the drop zone that I had MS because I was afraid, and it turned out rightly so, that they would have said, no, this is not for you. Go try bowling instead. And and I didn't want that to happen. And I knew, you know, I had 13 jumps coming back from this long, long break. And and so I had some idea of what I was in for. So I, th- I figured I would do a few jumps and demonstrate to them that I was safe. And then I would talk to them about my, you know, special challenges. So we were a few jumps in and I'm not proceeding as quickly as they would expect, especially for someone who had a background doing it before and knew what to expect. And so I come down from a jump with my instructor and... So you tandem? Oh, no, 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 uh-huh. no, no, no. Uh, that's, that's, that's... Skydiving, in fact, I didn't do a tandem back in the 90s whenever okay. I started the first time because we didn't temp- tend to do it back then. Tandems were invented in the 80s, but they weren't really common until the 2000s. Okay. So... In the 90s, most of us uh, just did the training, went up, you know, slapped on a parachute and oh, jumped out and and it's you're going to have to learn to land it on your own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So you, you've got an instructor falling with you though. Yeah. You you have an instructor. And, and so the first couple of jumps that you do, you've, the first few jumps, you've got two instructors and they come out hanging on to you, but not attached. And then you go to one instructor hanging on to you, but not attached. And then they come out with you, but they're not hanging on to you at all. So it kind of progresses like that. So I'd gotten to the point where it was just one instructor that was going out with me. And we came down after this jump. And mind you, she's very expert. She's got thousands of jumps, lots of ratings. She kind of looked at me wild-eyed and said, that is the most terrifying skydive I've ever experienced. What's going on with your legs? So I, I, I said, okay, well, you know, I can't feel them below my knees. And she kind of looked at me funny. She said, well, did you injure yourself? I said, no. I said, well, so I explained my MS and what it was doing to me. And... So she was like, oh, okay. So everybody by that time knew that I was safe. So, and what do I mean by safe? That means that I remained altitude aware the whole time and I managed to get myself stable. Even if I was spinning around and flailing because I couldn't control my knees, I always managed to get myself stable on time and deploy my own parachute. So that's like the minimum you have to do to to keep going. To not die. And huh? To not die. Yeah, to not yeah. die. I, not <laughs> not dying is important because the goal of every skydive <laughs> is to be able to do another skydive. Okay. <laughs> so so uh, 
everybody banded around me. And, and you know, they're the drop zone. And, and skydivers become very close to one another, uh, similar to military personnel and, and first responders, because you're, you're out there doing an activity together in which people can die. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, really fosters close emotional bonds. So skydivers call themselves Sky Family. And uh, they banded around me. We did lots of extra training on the ground. I spent a lot of extra time in a wind tunnel so that I could have instructors right there holding onto my legs saying, this is exactly where they need to be. And what that allowed me to do was I couldn't feel what was going on below my knee, but I can reliably feel what's going on at my knee. So I was able to understand, okay, the tension in the tendons behind my knee is like this, and that means this is what's going on with my lower leg and foot. So I was was able to reinterpret the signals I could get to understand what was going on in the places that weren't sending me signals. Same thing with landing a parachute, not being able to feel your your feet. It was about learning for me to feel the pressure at my knees. So being creative with a lot of support and a lot of extra work uh, allowed me to, you know, in 2019, I got my A license, got my B license, logged about 140 jumps. In 2020, I said, okay, now I'm going to set myself a serious goal, and I'm going to become a legit skydiver. And what that means is passing 500 jumps, because 500 jumps is where you're eligible for all the licensing in the sport, and you're also eligible for professional ratings. So that meant in 2020, if I was going to do that, I was going to have to jump better than one jump a day for the entire year. So in 2020, while most of the world was sleeping, I logged 370 skydives. Wow. And got my coach rating along the way so I can help teach people. And, and you know, this was, this was really important to me because not just was this about reclaiming a childhood dream, it was about the thing that I was most terrified of in the world was my own body. Because you have an exacerbation that suddenly leaves you paralyzed on the floor a couple of times, and you're not going to trust yourself as much. And you suddenly, your brain stops allowing you to think your way through a problem that you've done a thousand times before. You're not going to trust yourself. So for me, this was about, I am going to put myself in a position with my wonky body where I am flinging myself at the earth repeatedly, tripping my acute stress response and saving myself every time. What was the trigger for for you to sort of take that leap, for want of a better word, to say, I want to do skydiving again? Because if you're going through your regular life, um, Mm -hmm. doing your AI, which is terrifying to me. Um, (laughs) Terrifying. No, we use our powers for good and not for evil. Well, uh, Elon Musk, I saw a thing of Elon Musk and he was saying he's been trying to sound the alarm of of AI and how dangerous it is for years. Oh, it totally is. No one's listening to him. So It's 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 a, just like any big tool, man, Good or evil. Use it wrong. Yeah. Well, when he said if it's programmed to do something and humans are in the way of that programmed task, I'm paraphrasing and butchering it, but he was like, it doesn't have a conscience, so it's just going to eliminate that obstacle, which is a human. Yeah, now we're getting in, back into the realm of Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics. Oh, my goodness. Four. So you're but- in... But in, so, in all seriousness, you know, why? so you're asking, why did I choose skydiving? Yeah. Well, what was the trigger for – where did you get to in a in – a, what was the catalyst in regards to your saying, okay, I didn't trust my body, um, so this is why I decided to do it. But there had to have been a, a, a trip point in regards to 
I have to do this because to reclaim yeah, I that sense of self. I hit bottom and and it was literally I mean I had I had I had left being an academic to become a tech entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, long story short and and the company was going and we were headed in the right direction and suddenly I had the worst exacerbation I'd ever had and I could no longer lead that technology you know initiative and the company blew up. When you and say exacerbation, what is that? Like symptoms? You an exacerbation is when you've got new attacks huh. in your in your central nervous system, and either it makes previous symptoms worse, or more likely with an exacerbation, you get new symptoms. Right. So in this case, it turned out to be a massive right frontal temporal exacerbation. And so what does that look like? That means higher cognitive function, abstract thinking. That means processing social signals. That means uh, uh, emotional regulation. In, in short, it looks like a good chunk of the list of symptoms that mimic dementia. Right. And, and suddenly, I did not recognize myself, my People around me no longer recognized me, and my my then wife and kids, who and we had gotten her successfully through a decade of cancer by this time, and my then wife and kids uh, decided that I was not going to get better and left. And so, my career blown up, my family had blown up. Three weeks after my son left, who was the last one who left, uh, my my beloved Akita Nemo, who was the one before the one you just you saw earlier, passed away traumatically in front of me, and that was literally the last thing I was hanging on to. And then, just like uh, a a a little screw you from the universe, three days after that, I was almost struck by lightning blinded me, deafened me, knocked me off my feet. So, yeah, at this point... You can, everyone can't I, see me, but my jaw just hit the floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so at this point, I had... I had for so long given up. It had been a process of saying goodbye to one thing after another that I loved about my life. I could no longer see a path from the life I was currently living to one I was interested in having. And so right before my son left, he said something to me. He said, Dad, you really suck at doing things for yourself. How and bitter, on the one though, hand, did that make you? Because if you've nursed your wife through a decade worth of cancer and you've raised your children, there, there should, yeah. I would imagine it would be normal to, to say, you know, hang on a minute, I deserve for you to stay around and look after me. Like I've done all this for you guys. How did you not go into a bit of space? I know obviously you were saying that you were really flat. They were terrified and they were overwhelmed. Okay. And they were unprepared. Okay. And so was I. And, and, And that is my point with behind everything that I do that no one trains us for this. Mm. Living with a condition that is never going to get better Mm. is terrifying. It's soul-crushing. It's not just a little list of medical signs and symptoms. It spills out into identity and behavior Mm. and cognition and relationships and, and all of that stuff. And and yet, not only do we think about it wrongly as the lay public, medical health and wellness professionals are also primarily trained according to an acute care model. And, and it's this idea that you're going to have a medically identifiable problem, you're going to assign a medical treatment that's going to solve it, and then you're going to send people back to the lives that they had before. 
that's great when you're dealing with a flu or a broken arm. Mm. But that model breaks down for chronic illness. So when you're talking about doing the lists of uh, who am I, Mm-hmm. Was the skydiving almost a way of you reframing and forcing yourself to reframe that identity away from the illness to recapturing a sense of self? Yeah, yeah, that is. Well, okay, so think about it. Let's go back to a second. For my, so my son told me that, and I'm in there thinking, you know, because by this time I'm completely broken and I have mm. nothing left in my life to hang on to. And, you know, when he said that to me in my head, I, 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 all I could do was mutter, but I used to be pretty good at that stuff. But, but I had put myself on hold for so long, just keeping everything together during his mother's illness. And, and, you know, as the sole income for a family of four for a decade and, you know, all those things that, I mean, too often, when things get really bad in our lives, we start focusing outward and, and trying to manage other things because we only have a limited number of resources to go around. Mm. And we give ourselves often the short shrift. And that's okay for a week mm. or a couple of weeks. Mm. But then, month after month, and year after year after year, you end up pretty debilitated. And I had. And and so when he said that, you know, all I could think was, well, yeah, I have not done anything solely for myself in over a decade. I don't know that he has ever seen me do something for myself in all that time, in his lifetime, that he can remember. And And so... I crashed. I crashed hard. And amongst other things, it was like, you know, either I am just not going to go forward or I need a win. And and I had spent about 20 years by this time always being the expert in the room, always being the guy with the answers. I was the professor. I was expensive consultant or and and I broken myself trying to be that person everywhere. And so I knew I needed to do something that I was not going to be good at, that that would force me to become humble in the world, to to re-engage a beginner's mindset, to to take myself down to the very big basics and rebuild myself step by step going forward. And with skydiving, I knew that this was something that was, you know, people think skydivers are, are adrenaline junkies with a death wish. And, and those are the people who don't stay in the sport. Mm. I don't think you this, guys have this, a death wish. I think, I think you guys are adrenaline junkies and you love the adrenaline. No, no, no. because, because, uh, you know, after a while, I don't get the same kind of adrenaline shot after doing it hundreds of times. Really? You know that happens. Humans acclimatize. Yes. So yes, is my is my uh, acute stress response going a little bit? But I frame it as excitement and and I know it as competence. You know, this is this is and it's and it's a really comfortable place for me now. The sky is my home. Mhm. It it is a it it is the most peaceful Zen experience you can imagine, and and if you ask other longtime skydivers who who've done this hundreds of thousands of times, more of them will tell you some variation of this than not. It it, it truly is my relaxing happy place. If it's your truly relaxing happy place. And you only mm-hmm. get to experience it for 13 seconds or whatever the free fall is. It's about 70 for me, but yeah. Mm-hmm. From 14,000 feet. Okay. Yeah. That's a very short window to be in that Zen place. How do you replicate it 
on terra firma. Oh, but well, okay. So, so yes, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm a devotee of meditation. I have been for decades. I did let it slip during that time. And that was, you know, part of it. So I, I begin my day with meditation. It's, I, I practice mindfulness through the day, but here's the thing. The thing that you do get, even though you don't get that, ah, hair on fire feeling, Mm-hmm. A skydive is a perfect biochemical reset because you jump out the door and you do get an adrenaline shot, even if we don't frame it the way that that a new a newcomer would. When you open your parachute, you get a dopamine serotonin chaser, and then you hang out at the drop zone afterward with your sky family, swapping lies about how well your skydives actually went, and you get oxytocin. And so that is that is a, a complete biochemical reset with like all the good stuff that you want mm-hmm. that you can then just carry into the next day or two or three. And, and that is a remarkable thing. It's also, it changes your mindset in another way. So you've seen the cover, the the picture that's on the cover of my book, yeah. right? So, and your book is your life lived well. Uh huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. everything I do is your life lived well. And uh, this picture took eight jumps over six weeks to get that image, because that is the exact image I I had in mind. It tells the story of the book. It tells the story of what I do. So for the listeners, because this isn't, there's no video. So it's a picture of right. um, Kevin skydiving and it's him above the clouds, basically. Yeah, the clouds, you know, beautiful clouds. The sun's on the horizon. I'm dressed in street clothes. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a jumpsuit on. I don't have a helmet on. It's it's jeans and a, and a, and a, and a sweater and, and my hair's flying in the breeze. And the important thing is my hands are up to my forehead. Mm-hmm. And I explain what that is in the prologue. But that is a symbol that every skydiver in the world will recognize. I'm about to sweep my arms out in a broad gesture. It's called the wave off. I am warning everybody in my airspace that I am about to actively save myself. Because here's the reality of that picture. I was 5,000 feet above the earth, headed to the ground at 120 miles an hour when that instant was captured. That means my life expectancy at that point is 27 seconds. If I do nothing, I will impact the earth in less time than a commercial. That's terrifying. And the earth will win. No, it's, you're not making it's, me I want think to of, ever go skydiving. <laughs> I think of it as a stoic memento mori. Yeah. So, 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 twenty-seven seconds left. But what am I doing? I am actively choosing life mm-hmm. in the face of certain death. I am taking control and actively saving myself. And so, when people pick up this book, when people do one of my seminars, I want them to understand that they are in that same position. I want them to understand that they may feel like their life is in free fall, that they are at the mercy of forces far bigger than they are with their medical condition, but that we can reframe it and we can get creative. And there's a whole lot of social and behavioral science that we can use to improve quality of life. Because I'm not interested in the health part of it. I'm interested in the quality of life part of it. Mm. And yeah, quality of health is part of part of, of quality of life. But there's so much more to it as well. Your books are, um, and I haven't read it, but from from all accounts, it seems to be a very raw and honest account of your story. What what made you want to be so um, transparent? I, there's one thing helping people, but there's another thing sort of bearing bearing all to the world to say this is the real me. Because the science is the most important thing. 
And and here's here's what I mean. So I had written this manuscript once, and it was about one part my story to eight parts science. Mm-hmm. And and I wasn't being dishonest with any part of my story, but I was purposefully protecting myself and and not sharing the most awful bits of it. And so I sent it out to my my readers and everyone came back and said, yeah, science is great, but we have to have your story here. And here's the reason why. Because, and so, and so I did, I rewrote, you know, I knew they were right and I rewrote it and now it's about one third my story, two thirds science. So why is that shift important? Because if it's almost all science and it doesn't tell the the darkest part of the human story behind it, then it's too easy for somebody who needs to really, really understand what's what I'm trying to convey. It's too easy for them to say, oh, this is Dr. Payne talking at me or down to me. And what I need them to understand is, yeah, I've got all that expertise and I'm, I'm putting that to use, but this is deadly serious life and death for me as well. And I completely understand I have all the compassion in the world for where you are at right now because I've been there because as much as we would like to say that oh this is you know he he got really awful he started skydiving and now his life's perfect it's not life with a chronic illness is an ongoing challenge and I still face those challenges day in and day out and and what I need people to understand is if I'm going to ask you to take the science seriously, and I am very serious about the science, if I'm going to ask you to do that, then I need you to understand that this is not an abstract academic exercise for me. This is about real lives. With with the... Um... With the state that you're in in terms of needing to sort of do something for yourself when you're at rock bottom and proving to yourself really that your body wasn't um, as negative as what it had been from from mm-hmm. saying, how has that trial translated into where you're at now? Because it seems there obviously has been a mind shift. Do you mm-hmm. have more faith in your body now after doing the whole skydiving thing? Well, it's a couple things. One is yes, mm. uh, but but two stuff that we haven't talked about is, you know, I I became a much better observer of myself, mm. and I started collecting. I was collecting eighty variables about myself every day. And running mathematical models and predicting what was going on and finding my own leading indicators and all that all that creepy science stuff that you were talking about. But but the point is, and and this is you know what I get to in my books and my seminars. I don't have a way for somebody. I am not a guru. I am not about pushing a particular way. There is no secret. None of that. What there is is a set of scientific findings about what contributes to a quality life or not. And me teaching you how to better observe yourself so that you can make better decisions for yourself in your own circumstance and put those into action. Because... I'm not expecting other people to go jump out of an airplane to to feel confident about their body again. Mm. But what I am expecting is that 
together, we can help you find something that helps you feel joyful, that helps you feel some agency or some control or influence in the world, that helps you feel meaning in the world, and, and that sort of thing. And, and the things that, that work for you now, it's like living with chronic illness almost always means some kind of behavioral change is going to have to happen. You know, it may be trouble with medical adherence. It may be diet or exercise or, you know, any number of other things. Well, it turns out if you look at the literature, there's about 150 ways to change your behavior. All of them work for someone, but only some of them will work for you. But I can show you from the research what you can look to in yourself so that you understand, oh, okay, this way of changing my behavior is likely to be more effective than this other way. And so let's try that. And don't rely on what your your mother's hairdresser's cousin said you should be doing. Right? And that's what we do right now. And mm. that's really frustrating. And it's and that's that's disheartening to be in that circumstance because we too often fail. So I want to help people hedge their odds. What's your relationship now with your ex and children? You know, I, I, I would love for my children to be a part of my life, and I am always open for that. And I, you know, they're, they're, they're 18 and almost 21 right now, so they're living their lives and doing their things, and maybe someday they will figure out that that uh, it would be nice to make time for their dad. Um, my my former wife and I, uh, probably more days than not, we 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 trade funny text messages, and and that's a nice that space is, to be in. Uh, that is the extent of our relationship and has been, I, we haven't had a serious conversation in a decade. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I don't think she's a bad person. Mm. I, I was hugely disappointed and hurt. And I think she was too, because I think she didn't, she wasn't able to understand why I imploded because you can't, you can't see what's going on in inside with multiple sclerosis, mm. and it can be really hard for people to understand on the outside. And if you had to give someone one core message that was dealing with a chronic illness, what would it be? It starts with kindness towards them or towards you. others. No, no, no. It starts with you being kinder to yourself. It really does. Because we can think about it this way. If somebody else treated you the way you treat you sometimes, would you still be in a relationship with them? Mm. Probably not. Mm. And we've already talked about at the beginning how life with a chronic illness can too easily shift your identity self-talk. Mm -hmm. in a negative direction and and so it can get really dark and really ugly and 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 really nasty up here in our heads and and it can get really hopeless and and so what i would say is a a better life is possible and it will you know it may not look like what you want right now or what you expect right now or what you had and mine's yeah mine certainly doesn't mm -hmm. it's not the life i set out to have but it's a good one and it's a life that i that i treasure now um, but that begins with you being kinder to yourself with you showing yourself some grace with you understanding that uh your expectations and your 
the ways that your mind, those voices in your mind, especially those primal early voices in your mind are criticizing you is fundamentally the only misbegotten way that they have to try to help you. To try and to that's a whole nother conversation. To try to help yeah, and that's you. A whole, yeah, mm. because they're trying to warn you from in, in their limited sense. So you got to understand our primal fear voice, okay? So our fight or flight response, right. our acute stress response. It's really more like freeze, front, flight, fight, fawn, flock, fright, faint. There's a lot of stuff going on there, possibly. It's all about getting distance. It is pre-rational. It is, and, and, and in its mind, you know, in its part of your mind, the only way it can see it is this is a threat, and a potential threat is likely to kill us. And so in its mind, either it has nothing to say, or it needs to shout really loudly and really negatively, because otherwise we're going to die. But that would be because different. it can't see the big picture. But that would be different to just negative self-talk, right? No, but it, but it, but it comes off. I mean, this, and analogically speaking, right. you know, lots of other voices that are that are speaking to us, and some of them then are going to be are going to be like internalized voices from later on. You know, that we have been enculturated or socialized into thinking but but i kid you not every bonehead decision was always done by a part of somebody's brain that thought it was a good idea at the time and and it i know it's hard to think about this but there's there is generally no part of your mind that is purposefully trying to undermine you You've got to understand how that part of your mind is misinterpreting or misunderstanding the world. Because mm. your central executive can see the big picture. That part of your, your brain can't. I know it's kind of a wacky gestalt shift. Well, no, yeah, because a lot, of, a lot of what you hear is do the mindfulness and do everything and limit what you hear, which is what I was asking in regards to the social media, limit the negative inputs and stuff like that to help reframe a more positive mindset and negative self-talks is self-sabotage and yada, yada, yada. But you're actually reframing it in a way that I never had thought about it before. Mm -hmm. Because if you try to just cut it out, that will never work. If you try to just dismiss it or ignore it, that will never work. That will motivate that part of your brain to get louder and more insistent and more intrusive. Okay. So by so from from those that read your book, they'll be able to say, these are the strategies that are best going to align with myself to help me right. reframe that. Right. Okay, I need to read your book. <laughs> and so if people go to yourlifelivedwell.co right now, they can download 100 pages free okay. to see if it's something that they would be interested in. You're also, I, I, sorry, go, go. No, just because I, 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 I don't want anybody to get the book or to take one of my seminars if they don't really feel like it's going to be useful for them, uh, you know? Well, you've also got your podcast as well, Your Life Will Live Well podcast. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming that you right. talk a lot about this sort of stuff on that podcast as well. I do. Mm. I do. It's all about the these social and behavioral and cognitive and emotional aspects to living with a chronic health condition. Mm -hmm. And so in each episode, it's it's you know, it's an educational podcast. So it's it's me getting into something like we had a recent episode on the language around chronic illness mm -hmm. and how that affects the way we and others think about it. I've got another episode coming up on kindness uh, pretty quickly, 
and one on masculinity. How do you, how how do you how do you negotiate your identity as a sick man? Hmm. Because there there are so many great voices out there who are females mm. talking about life with a chronic illness. And there are some really great men talking about that too, but not nearly as many. Well, the majority because, of the listeners of this podcast are men. Yeah, and that's that, yeah. cool. But but they're very they're they're if comparatively they're not as many men talking about out there talking about life with chronic illness. Yeah. And part of that's because we are socialized into being <laughs> you know, gruntly manly men. And that is obviously toxic and stupid and short-sighted, but that's an interesting Nevertheless, statement. That's I don't what we've know. Got. Yeah, I think that's a whole other conversation. I don't know if that's necessarily correct, but we'll we'll leave that one there. <laughs> that might be another three-hour well, podcast. <laughs> that would be another three hours. What I will say is that my generation is much worse about that than the current generation. We are getting better about it, but yeah, I mean, as a guy born in the '60s, you bet. That's how we were socialized. I don't know. I like a manly man. <laughs> what I, and what I'm saying is, that's not a bad thing if you do it in the right way. Yeah. But but we get caught up in superficial representations of manhood, and and kind of lose track of the deeper values. And you're right. Now we're in danger of just spiraling off. This is well. This is why it's a conversation, not a set question answer <laughs> format. I like to be able to explore other avenues with people. It's like we were going to initially at the start of the podcast talk about your early years, and then we ended up talking about identity and and AI. So <laughs> we would never have explored that. It all tied back in anyway, so it's fine. Now you've got your podcast, um, your life lived well, and you've also got speaking arrangement uh, gigs. How can people get onto you? Is it just your website, yourlifelivedwell.co? Is that how they can book you for uh -huh. speaking? Yeah. Okay. Yourlifelivedwell.co. And and actually, uh, this week we're uh, releasing a new slate of of public webinars uh, for the next three months. So March, April, May actually into June, uh, so four months, uh, that are on 16 different topics that will rotate through those periods. And, and they're from things like help I've just been diagnosed to, um, you know, giving and receiving care and how that adjusts the negotiation in your relationships and, and uh, you know, medical adherence and how you can stack your motivations and your reinforcers to to help you stay on medical treatments that may be difficult for you to do. So lots and lots of different topics that are uh, of direct relevance. Um, I've got a someone that's actually been on the podcast and she's just started up a um, her own podcast as well and it's about the patient experience and I will reach out to her and I think it might be a good fit for you two to, to have a chat. But thank you for coming on oh, this one. Oh, sure. I, I like making it. new friends. <laughs> I feel like I've made one today. You have. You have. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks so much for the chat. Thank you. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 